we choose each other every single day. We choose to be committed to each other. We choose to see this through together. We choose to see this out together. It is a choice every single day. I choose Stephanie every day. And with that, I choose this caregiver life. Welcome to the RMBC Life Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. November is National Family Caregiver Month, a time when we honor more than 65 million Americans who care for their aging or disabled loved ones. Unpaid care provided by family caregivers makes up to 90% of long-term care in America. This month is not lost to people who have MBC. In my own experience, my caregivers have been vital in assisting me with navigating my cancer diagnosis and treatment, as well as keeping my family safe and happy. Caregivers do so much for us, and I'm often wondering if we do enough for our caregivers. Today, I'm joined with my co-host, Ashley Fernandez, as we talk about caregivers and their unique perspective and how we can talk to them and support them through the caregiving experience. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Natalia. How are you? Doing well. So you and I have talked about this caregiver episode for quite some time and for quite a length of time. You and I have MBC and we've relied on our spouses as caregivers. Why do you think it's important for us to highlight caregivers? It's so important for us to highlight caregivers because they hold us together. They're like the glue. Everything that we cannot do, they do for us and then some. Absolutely. I think they're such a behind the scene person in like this cancer experience, right? Everyone's always concerned about us. But often we forget about the ones that are behind the scenes, as you said, like my mother, my husband, my uncle, like just the people that give up everything to make sure that our needs are met every day. Yeah. People don't know that you have a whole team behind you supporting you and making life as normal as possible. So it's so important to have their support and it's important for us to continue supporting them through their process as well. Definitely. It's such a blessing. And I'm so glad that we get to honor all the amazing caregivers in our lives this month. According to the CDC, caregivers are considered family members or friends who typically provide unpaid, long-term, community-based care and assistance to older adults and people with chronic health conditions or disabilities. Caregivers help with a variety of routine tasks, such as shopping, paying the bills, bathing, dressing, managing medicines. They are often a source of emotional support and companionship for the recipients. 58% of caregivers are women. Almost one-third of caregivers provide care at least 20 hours a week. Caregivers typically learn as they go and aren't formally trained. One in six non-caregivers expects to become a caregiver within two years. Caregiving is also a public health concern. 
because it can lead to physical, emotional, psychological, and financial strain. Providing personal care and helping with behavioral and cognitive issues can be stressful for caregivers and result in depression and anxiety. Nearly one in five caregiver reports fair or poor health. Caregivers often neglect their own health needs, increasing their risk of having multiple chronic conditions. Nearly two in five caregivers have at least two chronic diseases. Our first guest is William. He's been caregiving for his mother after her recent diagnosis of MBC. He shares insight to what it's like to be a caregiver to a parent. Here's William. So we're all on the receiving end of having a great caregiver in our lives. We just want to ask you a few questions, if that's okay, about your experience about caregiving for your mom. William, tell us a little about yourself. Where are you from and how did you find out about your mother's diagnosis with cancer? That's kind of a unique story. My The mother of my children informed me that she wanted a divorce. And the day after, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. So it was a lot of craziness at once. This was the summer of 2000. In 21, it was basically stated that my mother had cancer since at least earlier in that year. So it's not that she was retroactively diagnosed. The question was like, geez, how did this get so far along without us knowing? I remember it being a lot. I remember just on a personal note, I remember feeling like I was going to be dealing with uh, a lot of emotions alone and stuff like that. But in a kind of a poignant way, My mom was there for me when I was going through what I was going through, just like I was there for her. Yeah, it was a big shock. My mom is someone who you think of her as steadfast, healthy, exercising always, et cetera, et cetera. And to a great extent, she's gotten back to that. Initially, you sit there and think about all of the things that would be different and whatnot. But to answer the heart of the question, it was a shocker. I'm optimistic. I'm also superstitious. Like I don't, I try not to We get good news sometimes. We just say it's solid. We get good reports. We don't overreact. We kind of, we celebrate little victories. I'm just saying the face and countenance of what hope actually looks like probably varies from person to person. Yeah, you try, you definitely try to stay positive. What do you want people to know about being the primary caregiver? Things that you should automatically know are that you're not dealing with somebody at their brightest moment. You know, you're going to get them at a low point. It could be the person that you thought you knew that acts differently, or it could be that they bring up the Crayola crayon that you took from them when you were three years old, and they never brought that up before. It's all coming out because emotions are high. Emotions will be high for everybody. And it's important that if you have a disagreement or a moment of, wow, this is too much, you follow that up with a deep breath, a moment of quiet celebration, something like that. So that's the first thing is that people are going to be not at their their top optimum level around you. Even the nurses who are overworked, the doctors, and certainly the person that you're caring for, as well as you dealing with all these new things. And the second thing would probably be pay attention to the details. You know, the person that you're caring for, they won't be able to observe every single detail. Get the perfect gel gloves to to wear during the chemo. Have the ice chest already filled on the way. Up. The little things that you know you can quietly take care of. Those are the little things you need to quietly take care of. Because you know there's a lot of little details. Having cancer 
And that's what being a caregiver is all about. What types of things are you doing as a caregiver? What kind of things are you navigating with your mom? So one of the first things that happened after she had cancer, in her weakened state, after some of her first tests, maybe shy of her first fusion, but as all of this kind of was swarming around her, was in trying to do the things that she used to do. This is my mother I'm speaking of. She fell. She broke her dang hip. I'm smiling about it now because a bit of a mind fudge there to see her go into chemo and then also recover from hip surgery, which magically happened. So there was a lot. Initially, it was quite a whirlwind. It was helping physically, lifting, rearranging the whole apartment to get the rugs out of the way so she doesn't trip because she's more fragile now. My mother is, I'm not going to say she's elderly, but she's in advanced age of wisdom and insight, let's put it like that, Uh, fixing bathrooms so that it's something that she could do with the handheld shower hose and the seat in the shower so that she doesn't fall the fragility of her now as opposed to before. And I did mention the hip thing, but in addition to chemotherapy and radiation, obviously, the fragility is something that she needs to be facilitated. She can't, you know, there can't be any dangerous snags around. And then in addition to that, I do a bunch of stuff. For a while there, I was spending the night with her during her initial chemo and during her recovery from all of this, making sure that she was adjusted to the new normal of whatever it's like for her to be at night. I'm not trying to get too specific about my mother's situation. Just all of the equipment, the heavy lifting, the change of her scenery That was one of the first things that had to happen. Obviously, I do a lot of transportation as well, taking her to and from this place, checking up on her, trying to be there during especially difficult days. If it's her day of infusion or if it's her day to start taking this medicine again that she does one week on, one week off. And also to be with her uh, for good things. I've taken my mother on, or we've gone, let's put it like that. We've gone on road trips during this Over the last year and a half, we've been on three by my count, one trip to New York. It's my job to, I'm her son, but now maybe I'll be like her brother, kind (laughs) of. If if I could explain it, like the way in which we're at eye level as I try to just make sure she's ensconced well, safely into her new life, you know, and carrying up the heavy waters from the grocery store, anything, anything. Certainly there on times when she foresees that there will be a fatigue or if there is an immediate need, then I'm there. And like I said, for a while there in the early stages, I was sleeping there every night, every other night. She is, she's knock on wood. She's doing well. She's doing well in her, in her unassisted life. Not everyone is able to have that, whatever, but she's been doing well. She's been trying to play it safe and doing things that she likes to do. And working still. My mom works remotely a little bit, so she's doing okay. Still hustling, huh? Good for her. Yeah. What is it like for you, though? Like, how stepping in isn't easy, right? Like, you're managing someone else's life on top of yours. You said you had kids. You have your own situation that you're dealing with. Do you feel like that's had a mental impact on you personally, caring for someone else? Yes. Anything could happen to anyone at any time. And it sounds scintillating in theory, (laughs) but then it actually happens. And when it happens, you feel that too, the anythingness of any timeness. You can really feel like what that's like. Every moment matters more, especially with that person. 
you appreciate the little things more and there's a little more stress and a little more effort and more things to do, obviously. Yeah. You learn not to take things for granted. These are cliches, but I feel them now. They mean something. Cliches mean something. So they're meaningful. These ones have come to mean something. And I look at my mother differently now than I did. I guess it's changed the nature of our relationship, to be honest. There's a, when I'm around her, I try to, we speak more like friends. We try to take the pressure off of each other. Not that that isn't bound to happen as a son or a daughter grows up. It changes who you are and it changes the relationship that you have with the caregiver or the the person who is who's thriving. Definitely. So we know that caregiving's hard. And I don't want to speak for your mom. But I know as a patient, it's hard to ask for help, especially from family too. Yeah. You're right. Your relationships do change. And maybe you're seeing your mom as a woman now instead of your mom because you're spending more time with her. I always found the same situation as I'm growing up and I have my own kids. My relationship with my mom has changed because she's less of my mom and taking care of me all the time. And now I'm doing a lot of things to take care of her. Are you part of any like support groups or are you using any resources to help with your caregiving aspect of like, how do you self-care? I have a life. (laughs) I live my life. I I do my thing out here. You ask a loaded question. All right. So (laughs) my mom's cancer did coincide with me getting divorced, which I didn't want to do at the time, but now I'm pretty solidly enjoying. My mom has been there for me the whole time. My parents were divorced when I was five. There's been a lot of, I don't know, something bordering on situational irony or like just coming full circle. Yeah. She's kind of a dating coach, I guess you could say. Back on the the dating scene and all that. So that's been an interesting thing for her to bond with me around and quirky, I guess you'll say. We have moments with me with my mom who's living with NBC and she's swiping my hinge with me. And, all that. and it's cute and funny, and it's something that I could love be in some it. Kind of sitcom or a movie. Or <laughs> so there, there's that. But I'm a guy. I like to go in nature. I go out and do stuff. I hike that type of stuff. I don't have any support groups or anything that I am a part of. I do read up a little bit on cancer research, though, on a related note, as far as what I pay attention to in the realm of this, all that type of stuff. Wonderful. But no, nothing specifically. No support or anything specifically based off. Of this situation. I haven't looked up the statistics and I'm sure it's out there that caregivers probably are, they don't seek help or there's not a lot of resources for them. You would like to typecast them, but a good caregiver would probably, part of their selflessness would come from the fact that they realize the person that they're caring for is in such a worse situation than they are, at least in one respect or another. And being that selfless individual, it, you would naturally say, well, I'm not the one who needs help. Like, I'm the one who's helping. Yeah. And I want to touch on something that you said earlier about people not wanting to ask for help. That's another thing worth knowing as the caregiver. To go back to, like, question one or two, I would add that as well. Like, your friend or your family member, whoever they are, they most likely need some help. They're not always going to want to verbalize it. No one likes to be like Think of yourself in that situation. No one likes to be like that. I'm not even going to phrase it using the word burden or whatever, because it's not really that. But people think of themselves like that when they're asking for help. And there's a there's parts, there's texts or conversations or phone calls where I have to break through that initial wall. Like, mom, mom what's good? What do you need? Like, yeah. I'll do it. I don't even care. Like, you can ask. Like, I sense there's something there. 
a reason why you're bitter or forbidden or upset or lacking on this particular day. You can say it. It's all right. All right. My bad. What, what were you fixing at? You're an amazing son. And <laughs> yes. I love that you said that you and your mom scroll and just do life together. That's pretty fantastic. So continue to do that and keep that dynamic working. That's a great answer. She's very lucky to have you. It speaks a lot to why you're your mom's caregiver. The fact that you don't see it as a burden and you're seeing it as I'm just helping my mom out. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Awesome. Thought-provoking questions. And everybody can learn something from everybody else, period. Whether you are being cared for or whether you are the caregiver, And that lesson in and of itself is probably one of the first things you'll learn if you really dedicate your time to someone else. According to caregiveraction.org, 1.4 million children ages 8 to 18 provide care for an adult relative. 72% are caring for a parent or grandparent and 64% live in the same household as their care recipient. Fortunately, most are not the sole caregiver. 36% of family caregivers care for a parent, and seven out of 10 caregivers are caring for loved ones over 50 years old. Our second guest is Kayla. She has been caregiving for her wife, Stephanie, for over the last two years with an MBC diagnosis. Kayla provides the perspective of caregiving and navigating MBC as a same-sex couple. Here's Kayla. Okay, so we met two weeks before the pandemic started. We met on Twitter, and then at the time, she was three and a half years, no evidence of disease from her stage three diagnosis. She was three and a half years out from that. She was doing her six-month checks. Then she started having issues with her shoulder, and none of us thought it was anything. We thought, she's a hairstylist. Oh, maybe it's stiff because she's not working, all the stuff. And it took us months to get her into physical therapy or even into an MRI because of COVID. And finally, her physical therapist was like, I, there's something weird. You have to go get an MRI. This is just not it. She was like in pain. She couldn't lift her arm. It was Friday, November 3rd. And she went to see the orthopedic to get her scans read. And like NBC Life, you know your scans. You read them like the second they hit your account. Right. And she had read and was like, oh, it's totally fine. It looks like I have a frozen shoulder. No, she called me at work and was like, it's back. It felt like my stomach dropped three floors all the way into like the ground. And Maddie was at the doctor's office with her. I was at work and she was like, it's back. I have to put my arm in a sling. The tumor is growing in my bone and it's broken my arm. They don't know how I've been working. They don't know how I'm in so much pain and they don't know what's going to happen. And so... It was horrible. I like got my car and screamed the whole way home. I was so mad. I was like mad at God. I was mad at, we're not super religious people, but I was like, how dare you do this to me? Like we had been together like six months. We were planning our wedding. We had just bought a house. I was like, like we did it. Like we did it. She was at the four year mark of her cancer. Like that's so close, so close to five years. And they were like, welcome, welcome to NBC. And within a week we were like, I had never been to the cancer clinic before. I had never done that. It was hard as a cancer muggle to like, uh, I entering a cancer center for the first place is wild. We had masks at the time. So like, I wasn't just bare facing just like constantly. Cause that's rude. 
But it was really hard. At the same time, though, like our community gathered around us. Like the day she found out, I think there were like 15 people in our tiny little house we had just bought and everyone just showed up and was there. They just sat on our couch with us and held our hands and just heard us out. And now two years post that moment of being like, I'm going to lose everything to be here and still have my wife in the other room and she's doing really well is wild to me to like even feel that again. I'm like, oh no, I can't believe we had to go through those moments. They should have a therapist like in the room when they tell you or like make it mandatory because it's not even, you know how American healthcare is not to just go for the system today. But like, (laughs) even for therapy, that's something we have to go out of pocket for. It's something all three of us are in, our daughter, me and Steph, to deal with our own stuff, but also to navigate this way forward. We want our daughter to make sure that she has a solid foundation with a therapist, like, or has someone she can talk to going forward. We're really honest with her. We try to base things off of science and we never want it to be a secret. I feel like so many people with cancer, NBC, we really struggle with how to talk to our children about it. We don't want to scare them. And that's something we have a really hard time with. Maddie is very aware of her mom's kind of morality. So we went from this quick diagnosis into MBC to like very much Steph went right into radiation. She had to have a partial removal of her humerus bone. They sliced and diced her, pulled it out and put a new one in. That was really hard and traumatizing because of COVID. We couldn't be together. And for the month before it went back and forth, it was you can be with her. You can be with her during the day. You can be with her before surgery. Okay, you can't be with her at all. And then finally, like two days before surgery, we found out I couldn't even enter the hospital with her. Oh my gosh. We had a lot of issues with our surgeon with some like fat phobia. I think that's also common. So with people who have a higher body fat content, they can have a reaction to this drug that is instantly fatal. And it's the bone cement they put in when they would like build a fake bone for you. So he basically explained it like, we don't know until the minute it hits your system. Oh, wow. And then they were like, oh, and you can't go to the hospital with her. We were in the clinic probably three or four days a week. It was a full-time job. It was like for a few months when you hit the ground running. Oh my goodness. And I was like, okay, this isn't traumatizing at all. I spent months. I still do it sometimes when stuff doesn't feel good, but I wake up in the middle of the night and I make sure she's breathing. For my anxiety and my peace of mind, I would wake up and be like, is she breathing? And then she came home from her hospital and she was in a sling for four months. For the first three weeks, she couldn't shower. She couldn't like even really move at all. And it was around the clock caregiving. She's doing great right now. She's got some movement back in her arm. We're treading that line of no evidence of disease, which is amazing. What, if you have noticed, is there a different way of navigating healthcare? as someone who has part of the LGBTQ community, or is it maybe different? Because if you both identify as women, then maybe it's a little more comfortable situation because most people who get breast cancer are women. Sometimes I feel a little awkward entering the breast cancer floor. I hate being like, it's like a form of survivor's guilt, like caretaker's guilt. I feel bad about my healthy non-cancer filled body. I don't know. That sounds so silly, but I'm just... I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to be there. But also we faced a lot of uncomfortable conversations with our nurses and people, a lot of people being like, oh, I thought you were sisters. Oh, I, or I thought like she was your mom, which is really weird. We're very close in age, <laughs> um, but people don't know what to make of us. And then when it came time to get Steph's ovaries 
taken out, no one offered us any reproductive options because I was like, can we have her eggs? And they were like, why you could just have it. You have eggs. And I was like, yeah, but if we wanted to have another child, could I carry her eggs? And we were denied actually, because there's a chance like they would carry everything like the cancer and stuff like that. And because Steph's been through a lot of radiation, but they told us we could not do IVF or like take Steph's eggs. Oh my gosh. Okay. It was partially, it was also her body couldn't stand the estrogen to do the egg retrieval. It would have hurt her in the long run. But to hear that, it was really disheartening. It's still something we struggle with a little bit to feel that loss of fertility. I feel like a lot of the times for heterosexual couples, they're very quickly off the bat, like offered chances to save their fertility or have options for later in life. Mm -hmm. You had to really ask and like push back on it and be like, yeah, but why? We never want to hurt Stephanie. That's, but we don't want choices taken away from us unnecessarily. They teach you how to have safe sex as a hetero couple while on Mm -hmm. chemotherapy. And I'm sure for a lot of people, sex is not the first thing that comes to mind when you're teaching about chemo and cancer and all those things. It's probably like, ooh, you still have sex? Like, our relationship is still good. We're still intimate with each other. We find ways to work around things if need be. But I looked at the nurse and I was like, this is awkward, but how are we supposed to like have oral sex? Am I taking a risk on? Because if it's men, you're not supposed to like in your mouth or condoms, all the things. She was like, and I was like, what about fluids? I want to know. I want to be fully informed. If there is a chance of chemo entering my body, Mm -hmm. I want to be aware of what the risks are, like what And if you haven't for straight people, why can't I know? You're going to tell me no man has ever asked you like what happens when he goes down there and she's on chemo. I'm curious. Let me know. And she was like so dumbfounded. And she was like, guess you could use a dental dam. I want to be aware. That doesn't mean I'm never going to have sex with my wife again. That's not why I'm asking people these questions. I want to be aware of the risks. And also if there are ways we can make sure like I stay healthy, that we're both more comfortable. Everyone is really concerned right at your diagnosis or during progression, right? That's when everyone wants to like send you food and send you a package or flowers or whatever. It's very sweet that they do that, but they don't realize that every day you get up, it could be a fight and your whole family is also dealing with it. Yeah. They don't think about the in-between time. My thing is just, what are we doing to take care of our caregivers? Because when I have honest conversations with my husband about the strain that caregiving does, it always blows my mind and it's kind of surprising, but I'm always glad to learn it. Mm -hmm. And he's not trying to fill me with guilt. He's just trying to be honest with me. And I think part of that is why we started going to therapy and doing that is like really often in these caregiver patient relationships, like divorce, happy couples, you see sometimes even abuse or at the base of it, resentment. And it was really important for us, like through these changes in the season that we keep our marriage strong because while stuff is here, we're in it, we're in it together. I love her. She loves me. And we want to be sure that for however long she gets to be here, our relationship is healthy. It's not like I'm just going to grin and bear it because she has cancer. And I think in the first part of her being like re-diagnosed and the quickness of it, I felt a little bit shoved aside and a little bit like, I just got to put my head down. We got to get through these days. Like I got to keep my family alive. <laughs> Because there were days before Steph's tumor was taken out, she was like cancer sick. And 
I think people in the cancer community really understand what I mean when I say mm-hmm. that. Like she would sit down and she would just fall asleep and she would just be gone. Steph had Maddie before I entered our relationship. I'm now her full parent as well, but I was like new to parenting a child, but it went from being equal opportunity partners. We still assume like slight gender roles. I will not lie to you, but it went to like dishes, taking care of the yard, the dog, the kid, making sure the kid didn't bother her too much, making sure she's comfortable, making sure have I eaten in the last 24 hours? Have I had some water? Has anyone else had water? And it's just trying to figure out how to teach yourself that you also matter because it was so hard to be yes. like, in this moment, I also matter or I need to take the time for me so I can be a better person and a better caretaker for her. Right after her surgery was some of the only time we had help. People really like to show up and help when it's, it looks good. It feels good. Cancer tourists a little bit. When it seems like an emergency is when people like to come in. And now it's two years later and my daughter has a cold and we're both exhausted and I'm stressed about stuff getting sick. It's like now would be the time where if someone wanted to bring me a lasagna, that'd be really freaking helpful. Or just come sit with my kids so I can take a nap. And it's it's hard because you feel bad after so many times of asking for help or being like, I'm so tired. Cancer is wearing me out. This is wearing on me. I need a day. You get to a point where you don't want to ask for help anymore. And I had this moment, probably like a year into diagnosis. It was after Steph's surgery and we were trying to hit like our new normal and get back from like, she did her arm surgery and then her ovectomy. So it was two surgeries very close together. And so she's been probably like six to eight months like healing from that. Also mentally, it was really hard for both of us. And I was kind of like, okay, we got through what felt like do or die. I need something that is like, helping me. So I like started going to therapy. I did ketamine therapy. I get migraines. So that helped with me. And we also invested in my health and we flip-flop. Steph goes down for a while and I help her. And then when she gets back up, she's like, oh, take a break, take a minute, take this, take that. And I think we're learning how to balance that, but also balance it in the moments that she doesn't feel good. Because there may come a day where she starts to not feel good and... That's just it. I hate to be like, that's just kind of it. But there may come a day where you start to not feel good and it doesn't really ever get better. So kind of helping myself get mentally well and helping myself find things that work for self-care for me to prepare for days like that or prepare for days that are extra hard and putting systems in place, really. I did not used to be a technology parent. Now I'm like, please take the iPad. Like if it buys us 10 minutes of sanity, it buys us sanity. I'm not here to complain about it. I will not take comments on this. Sometimes my kid is an iPad baby because I need her to be because it helps us as a family. And it's, I think some of it is giving up those preconceived notions of what we wanted our life to look like. That's a really great way to put it. You said you go to therapy. What has therapy started offering you? Has it made things easier? What's it like coping or? It's helped my anxiety a lot because it was to a point where I was waking up so many times a night where I was like, "Hmm, I'm not sleeping. It's starting to affect my health. Every little thing would stress me out so much. I was like, no, don't leave the house. No, don't do this. To the point where I was getting like, not obsessive about it, but like I was so worried and scared that I had to sit down with my therapist and I was like, I refuse to be scared for the rest of my life. And Stephanie says it all the time. She's, I could go outside and get hit by a bus. It could just not even be the cancer at this point. Every time anybody like does anything, they take a chance. And so it was a lot of conversations of me being like, so scared of her morality and so scared of being left alone. And like, how am I going to handle all this? And like working through that in therapy? Yes, that will suck. Yes, 
all these things that may happen one day. You are strong enough to handle it, all that, but also like letting go of that fear and learning to live in the now and cherish that. Because one of my biggest fears is that I'm going to be so worried about the future that I do not stop and enjoy the time I have with her now. I think that would be more heartbreaking than anything. I say all the time, I'm like, you live in this really weird situation where you have metastatic cancer, which is not something anyone has to have, but we are able to make our bills. We don't have to work. We're able to occasionally go on really lovely vacations. We spend all this time with our daughter and we're blessed in the stress. It's unfortunately, cancer has allowed us to become these better versions of ourselves. And I think a lot of it in therapy has been letting go of this fear, this like constant fear of what will happen and learning to live now. My therapist always says, only the Buddha can be perfectly at peace. Everybody is always worried about the future or the past, and we all want to be right here, right? Only the Buddha can do that all the time. Our goal is to get little tastes of it. Every day, a new thing I started doing when like the moment's really good or really nice or like Steph's driving with the window open and she's just like happy and she looks healthy. I like take a little snapshot in my brain. I'm like, click, mm-hmm. this is the moment. This is the times I want to remember. Live in this moment right now. Because in six months, maybe she'll be on her treatment and I'll be back to check in to make sure she's breathing in the middle of the night and checking her temperature and worrying about infections. When that day comes, I'm a lot less scared of it than I mm-hmm. once was. And I feel a lot more prepared to do it. That's really beautiful. It's such good advice. We can still enjoy this world while we're doing the cancer thing. Yeah. And now it's we're hitting our stride and it's cool. We're becoming more involved in the NBC community and like stuff's writing for ABC. It's advanced press. Like, I feel like we're making a difference. I really hope that someone somewhere is in my position two years ago and can see where we are now and be like, holy crap. What would you say is the hardest thing about caregiving? Watching her hard days. We are really struggling with scans right now. Not the active scans, but like going in and getting access to her scans and getting the blood draw stuff as her veins are not in a super healthy condition. She's not ready to get a port put back in. She feels like that would make her feel too much like a patient at this point. And that's totally fine. Quality of life is the most important. So like the days like she goes back and they're like on their fifth try to get blood out of her. And she's just like in tears laying there. And she's like, we have to do this. We have to get this done today. And I just wish like I could be in the chair. I wish I could take her blood. I wish like I could do her scans. Horrible. (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. It's just hard. Like sometimes I wish I could just like push away the nurses and just be like, hey, I'm here. I got you. Like we will get through this day. And sometimes that's what we have to do. But the hardest is when she has hard days. What does a hard day look like for you? Oh, probably a lot of laying in bed and crying. Sometimes I get up in my feelings. Someone recently, this is going somewhere, I promise. A husband reached out to me actually, and he was like, my wife just got diagnosed with MBC and I follow your wife and I see you guys. You guys are really amazing. What is your advice? And I was like, unfortunately, I don't have a ton. He said, stick by your wife, take care of yourself. And I know right now, every single day you wake up and it hits you like a train, right? And I still have days where it feels like that whole day is just like completely flattened, right? Oh, this is never going to change. I feel like my bad days look like anger. But I told him, I was like, one day you will wake up and it will not be your first thought. It won't even be your second thought. It'll just be a part of your day. Yes, I hate that for you, but I also love that for you because it means it's not your first thought is like, how am I going to get through this? Your first thought is like, oh, I love my kids. Or, oh, I'm excited about today. Or you roll over and you check your phone. It's not your first. Oh my God, my wife is dying and everything's trash. And how are we going to pay our bills? Like, 
you get to a point, I promise you, you will get to a point where you wake up and it is not your first thought in the day. Sometimes it is, but that's okay. (laughs) Part of being in this NBC community, it's very common that we talk about death often. It's likely that this disease will take the majority of people who have it. Yes. What, as a caregiver, what's that possibility? I know what it's like as a patient, but what is it like for our families to think about us not being around? I just feel lonely. She's my best friend. But mostly it's like fear for my daughter or like sadness. More than anything, I want Maddie to have her mom. Yeah, I'm also her mom, but like I would trade anything to know that one day if Maddie wants to call her, she can. And I'm just like, ah, that's the hardest part is our kids. You understand? The hardest part is your children is to look at them and think that I'm not leaving her, but one day I might have to watch someone leave her. And I'm just like, Because oh. it's what you want too, right? I want to sit in a rocking chair with her and get old and watch mm-hmm. Maddie get married or do what they do when they grow up. Ew, I don't ever want her to grow up. I want her to stay little forever. I want her. I want my best friend to be there with me. And I don't want her to... I get mad too. I don't want her to lose out on that. It's freaking unfair. It happens to people. Things could happen just as easily to me as they could to Stephanie. And so it's like this hard, as a caretaker, you're very aware of your partner's morality that you forget your own in a way. Honestly. And not only that, you might forget to live the life that you're continuing, right? Yeah. As we were coming out of the intensive time of cancer, now we're just in a holding pattern of like scans every three months, medications, blood draws once a month, that kind of stuff. And now it feels really easy and doable. And this was something we talked about like in therapy was as life returns to the before times, the things you wanted in the before times are probably going to start to pop Mm -hmm. back. And she's like, you guys wanted to have a baby before then that's going to pop back up. Like things are going to come up. And it's like hard to say goodbye to some dreams or know whether or not it's time to say goodbye to some dreams. So it's constantly a conversation we're going back and forth on that we are still going to probably continue to talk about for some time. Like we don't make any decisions lightly. <laughs> Let me ask you this to talk about the caregiver side is what do you want people to know about caregivers? How can we help out our caregivers and how can we recognize them better? Your caregiver is going to be the last person to ask for help. Your caregiver will be absolutely drowning before they're like, excuse me, could I have a life raft, please? <laughs> Check on your caregivers, feed your caregiver a snack. They're probably tired. (laughs) But also don't feel bad. Don't feel guilty. We love you guys. We are here because we love you. Something Steph and I talk about every day is it would be easy to pick up and leave this life. We choose each other every single day. We choose to be committed to each other. We choose to see this through together. We choose to see this out together. It is a choice every single day. I choose Stephanie every day. And with that, I choose this caregiver life. And Sometimes it sucks and sometimes it's really hard, but I am also important. And at the end of the day, I am doing what is best for my family. So I'd say what to remember about your caregivers. Ask them if they need something. Be like, excuse me, do you need a snack, friend? Or just, hey, is there a way I can give you like 10 minutes to de-stress? Like I do a new thing where I put my Bose headphones on and I like lay under my softest blanket and I just sit there for 10 minutes. And sometimes I cry and sometimes I don't, but I just take 10 quiet minutes to myself. And then I can do so much more with my day. Your caretaker, ask one to ask for help. They will be absolutely drowning. I swear to you. 
but they will still do it because they love you so much and they would rather see you be like happy and healthy than them be worried that they're tired. That's really sweet. They're absolutely exhausted. Like Steph sometimes will be like, oh, I can go get scans by myself. It's okay. Like you don't have to go and sit in the uncomfortable chair all day. And I'm like, no, like I'm (laughs) letting you go to that place by yourself. Yeah. We're here for you. We have chosen this life too. Don't forget that. You have been forced into it. We choose it. Okay, this next interview was actually really special to me. Just to keep you all informed, if you hear some background noises, it's because I'm actually at the hospital right now getting an infusion of fluids after my treatment two days ago. So that's the noise you might be hearing and why my voice sounds so muffled because I'm wearing a mask. So full disclosure, we had thought it'd be worth listening to some male spouses talk about their experience with caregiving. Unfortunately, I ran into a snafu and had to cancel my interviews. Luckily, I had a very willing caregiver, aka my husband Danny, fill in with a last-minute interview. This was really a unique experience that I'm super thankful for because my husband was able to open up to me and be vulnerable. Here's Danny and I talking about his experience caregiving. My name's Danny Green. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. Tell me about how you found out about my diagnosis. What's that been like for you? I was at work at the time. I was working at a law firm and I remember you called. We weren't expecting really bad news per se. At the time, we thought you might have had a blocked duct or something related to breastfeeding that might have been causing a lump. So. I don't think, at least I wasn't really expecting to hear anything cancerous. So you called me at work and said, hey, it's cancer. And we have to go talk to the doctor and learn more about it. I was pretty devastated. And I immediately left work and came home. And then I feel like I'm having a hard time remembering, but I feel like you and I cried for a bit. And then I went downstairs into a room by myself and cried for a lot longer And yeah, it was really scary, very frightening, really sad. And just really anything before, like that's a marker in life. There's before cancer and after cancer. It's like a measurement because that was a huge event. And it's sort of everything after is different and everything before is different. What was the NBC diagnosis? Did it feel different? Did you process it differently? Yeah, We've talked about this before, and it seems like you get a cancer diagnosis, and it's devastating, and then you go right into a flurry of activity. There's whatever your path is. It's a there's usually in a case like yours, it's good. There's going to be some surgery, a lumpectomy, a mastectomy, double mastectomy. There's going to be some time, some sort of radiation plus chemo. So right at the beginning, all that stuff is happening, and cancer is everything. But eventually you get back into more of a routine and then you live your life as long as it doesn't keep rapidly progressing. The chemo worked and you're on a good drug. You just go back to living your life and then you hear about a progression. And it's almost like finding out it it reactivates emotionally the same feelings as the original diagnosis. So it's like you live your life and then you find a progression and you go find out you had cancer all over again. And then 
you deal with that, take whatever medication, do more chemo, radiation, whatever it is. And then you go back to normal and then you find another progression and it reignites it. So getting the metastatic news, honestly, it on the one hand, it it like emotionally puts you back into the state of finding out you have cancer again. On the other hand, you're a bit more equipped because it's not the first time. But then there's another layer of so when you first get the cancer diagnosis, for me, I thought about death a lot. I thought, when is Natalia gonna die? How soon? If you're early stage-ish eventually those thoughts give way to like, okay, like we're just going to live our life and see how long it goes. The metastatic part adds a layer of realism because if you were early stage and got your treatment, sometimes you get lulled into thinking, okay, we're just going to like, we could be one of those stories where we caught it early, but we did everything right and quick. And then we're just fine forever. The metastatic part really, for me, made it sink in more likely than not Natalia will die from this disease as opposed to before that, there's a realistic possibility. You think, God, we could kick this and then we just go on, retire, and you die of natural causes. But barring an accident, a metastatic diagnosis starts to feel more like, okay, this soon or later, this is more likely the thing that's going to cause your demise. So that is another layer of sort of weight that adds on top of the cancer. What has it been like for you to transition into a caregiver role? It's been difficult. And part of it is my own fault because I don't think we actively tried to do this, but we fell into traditional gender roles where you were doing most of the domestic labor. It's not right. It's not fair, but I'm trying to be better at it. But that's been a a big transition because not only was I not pulling a full load like I should have been the whole time. I've got to get up to that plus two extra on times when you're not physically able to do all the things. It's difficult. I think one thing people might not expect, cancer is such a heavy topic. It's There's a lot of, rightly so, a lot of focus on the big things, the big emotions and the big changes. But the logistics of having a spouse with cancer, just practically speaking, is very difficult especially if you work full-time. So it's a little bit tricky to manage trying to keep my job and be a good employee and not get fired while still taking on extra extra responsibilities, making a lot of a lot more meals, getting the kids ready and driving them to school and trying to come back to work and then leave work to go pick them up from school, then come back to work. I really try after work to make sure that physically you're able to get a chance to recover because when I'm working, even with cancer, you have to power through and it sucks. But you still do a lot. And so I try my best to pick up everything I can when I can so that you can get a little bit of extra time to get some rest in so that you're ready for the next day. It's hard. It's, it's like I said, logistically, it is just hard when, if you're having a really bad day, if you are having really bad side effects from the chemo and you just physically like you, you really can't do much. The silver lining to look at it would be that it's a little bit of practice at what it might be like when you're gone because I have to do most things for the house and the kids and myself. And it's a little bit of practice of, okay, I get a little bit of, it's almost like trying on single parenting. It's like, I'm not really single parenting. You're here, you're still supporting and doing stuff. But on your worst days, it gives me a little glimpse of the difficulties of trying to handle everything, a full-time job, the kids, the meals, everything. And then God, you're going to have to edit a lot of this. 
And then I also feel a little bit of shame because I'm like millions of single parents do this every day. So part of me is like, I, I have a lot of whining and complaints about something that is very common for millions of families. It doesn't mean it's easy, but sometimes I do think, okay, people can do this. It's hard. So a lot of your caregiving involves caregiving for the kids. What's it like to caregive for me? Yeah, that's a really good thing. I imagine it's a problem in the caregiving community when you have kids. If it was just the two of us, things would be a lot easier to navigate cancer without kids. But because especially our kids are young, they're five and seven, when they're that young, they're sort of consume all your life. It sometimes can feel like the patient isn't getting the care because all the time and focus is on just literally taking care of children. But I think it speaks to your strength um, and maybe my weakness, probably. But I think it speaks to your strength because even through cancer, you really, you ma'am up quite a bit. You power through things. You still get stuff done despite being sick. And so unfairly, it means that I focus a lot of the time on just getting through the day and getting the kids from awake to bedtime. But it means that you're not getting a lot of caregiving from me, which is... That requires kind of a, a lot of work too, right? Like It does. Any stay-at-home mom would tell you that it is all-consuming. So people don't realize, I feel like a lot of the time I am taking care of myself, which is okay because it just really involves sleeping a lot of the time. <laughs> but part of taking care of me is also taking care of the kids. You know, that's very important to me that their schedules, routines, quality yeah. care, all of that stays the same for them. You're very nice and you're very sweet to me. You're also letting me off the hook a bit. You, you deserve a bit more caregiving, but I think uh, honestly, if there's value to add and learning from mistakes, if you have children, you're, you have a spouse with cancer and children, or even if you don't, but I mean, really, if you're trying to take care of more than just one person, it's really, really easy to focus on the most vulnerable people. If you have a two-year-old or a five-year-old, they need, they depend on you literally to survive. They need you to feed them and to take care of them. And it becomes easy if you have a spouse that's still like you're still mobile even when you're resting you're still up and about and it's a good reminder that you need to really consciously focus on providing care for your spouse because it's easy for that care to fall by the wayside when you're so focused on taking care of tiny humans who are a bit more vulnerable and need more help it's a lot easier to let your obligations for your spouse slip through the cracks when you're so focused on everything else. So I guess I'm saying a message to other caregivers or people who have recently learned of a cancer diagnosis, it's worth being mindful of caring for your spouse and making sure you like carve mental and just actual time and effort out of your day to to do that because you definitely deserve more attention and care than I've been able to give. But it's just hard. It's hard when you have a spouse and you have kids. It's just hard. What's the most difficult thing about caregiving? The hardest part for me is the mental side of it. I'm a very in my head and have a lot of neuroses. The hardest part is the feeling of helplessness because I can't make your cancer go away. The side effects from the drugs, I can't make go away. The side effects that you get from the drugs to treat the other side effects that you're having, I can't make go away. I can't make you, like, I can't do much to make it quote unquote better. 
So there's a lot of helplessness because I can see you fatigued. I can see you in pain. I can see you in discomfort. But I can't physically do anything to make any of it go away. So the most I can do is just try to just be as helpful as you can. Things of convenience. I can make you food, bring you drinks. I can get you snacks. I can talk to you, just hang out and spend time with you and be close. But I think that's the hardest part of being a caregiver is like you're standing by while somebody else is experiencing something and you're really helpless to do anything about that experience because I can't really do anything other than just be there for you. And it's really difficult when it's your spouse because I desperately want to do something to make it better, anything. Yeah. And I can't. So it's very difficult to take care of somebody who you really can't make better. I think it's fair to say that it's not just my cancer that we're dealing with. Like you're affected, our family's affected because of it. And obviously what we're dealing with is easy from my perspective to talk about because I'm the one going through treatment. I get a ton of resources and I get a ton of support. I think we forget about like families and caregivers and our friends that help us out. How do you think this disease has affected you? I think if you're new to this, I don't I don't think it's hard to plan for exactly how invasive cancer can be for the person who doesn't have cancer. It's obviously invasive for you. It's invading your organs and it's spread to other areas. You'd be surprised how often you can be on a work call and then find yourself getting emotional out of nowhere. No one said anything. No one brought up anything that was like somehow triggering, but you can just be in the middle of your day and just out of nowhere, you can just start crying. I do that probably two or three times a week. You can, it's easy to imagine because we have movies and TV and stuff. You can imagine, oh, I I can project what I think might be like if I found out my spouse had cancer. But what I don't think people could plan for is it affects every part of your day, everything you do, every really, truly every choice you make. You're deciding if you want where to go on a vacation for a family. You're going to have to plan around your cancer. If you're on active chemo, you're not going to want to go on vacation two days after you get chemo because then you're going to be sick to your stomach, throwing up in bed. So you have to like, okay, every choice you make, okay, should we do this? When's my treatment? Because we got to plan around that. Or we only plan what to do based off of how you're feeling. So it's like, you know, the amount of things that change that you wouldn't expect to change the small things, the frequency that you are able to go do stuff with your spouse. Even after we had kids before cancer, we still able, were able to find a lot of time to do things for ourselves, go to the movies, go on dates, go to, out to dinner. There's been a massive decline in our time together since cancer, which is very frustrating because you'd think after a cancer diagnosis is when you want to spend the most amount of time with your loved ones. So just that, the biggest impact on every part of your life that you wouldn't expect. The amount of impact it's had on me and my career and work. I'm in a good place now, but it's like I have to think about what certain opportunities are available based off of also my need to have time for you, which tone-wise that came out super bitter. I don't mean that. I just mean all I'm trying to say is it infects every part of your life. So every decision that you think wouldn't be affected by cancer is affected by cancer because it's either the reason you do or don't do a lot of things and you may have done or not done them differently 
without the cancer. So just to give it context, right? A lot of job opportunities for you would be to apply out of the state that we're living in. And because we have such high support here where we live now, it makes it hard to jump on those other opportunities because then we think about if we move out of state and I'm sick, who's going to watch our kids? Who's going to help pick them up from school? Who's going to drive me to an appointment? Any of those things. And those unfortunately play a role in the decisions you're making to advance your career. Yeah, I work from home right now. And that's been a huge, huge help because I can pop upstairs real quick if you need something or if you have a sudden onset of I'm just feeling really sick. It's easy for me to just pop up real quick and go do that. If I had to drive 25 minutes to an office, it's a lot harder. Or if you have to go to an appointment, we have a sitter, I can easily go with you. And if not, I can stay home, still work and have the kids around. And where we can go for opportunities is limited. Also, like not many jobs and the stuff I do are able to work from home. That's also a limiting factor. It's like I'm more willing to stay, I'm more willing to stay in a job that's letting me work from home than I otherwise might have been willing to do because of the opportunity to work from home. Those seem like very small, specific examples, but the point is cancer affects all of those decisions. It affects every part of your caregiver's life. So it just, I don't mean to sound doom and gloom, but if you're recently facing a spouse with a cancer diagnosis, it's better to go in eyes wide open and realize that you want to be mentally prepared to have cancer as one of the predominant factors of any, it'll be one of the things that sways every decision you make. I think that you're painting yourself in a picture that makes it seem that you aren't a good caregiver. I shouldn't say good. You're painting yourself in a way that you feel like you're not doing enough. And I just want to set the record straight that you are doing enough. You and I talk about this all the time. Like it's very hard for me to give up control, especially on a quote unquote job that I'm supposed to be doing. It's hard to have someone take care of you as well. And you know that I've been easing into being taken care of. Now I think I'm much better at it than I was at first, but you're doing a good job. I don't think there is a need or want that I or me or the kids are searching for or in need of for sure and it's honestly quite amazing to me that you're able to do as much as you're doing you work full-time you're basically caretaking for us full-time especially on the weeks that I'm fresh off my treatment so I hope you know that but I think you should know that and that our listeners should know that you come through you pull through all the time I think you're a perfect example of what a caretaker should be. It's us constantly trying to even out this game, right? Of like parenthood and our married lives together is like, how can we be there for each other? And it just seems like a lot lately you've been there for me the last few years than I have for you, which brings me to my next question. Are you using any resources? How do we help take care of our caregivers? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Well, thanks for saying that. Um, You're welcome. I think because you can't do much to fix the cancer, 
it's hard to feel like you're doing good as a caregiver because you don't really see a lot of tangible improvements. You're providing care for a spouse. It's like when I'm caring for our kids, if they're sick, I know they're going to get better. So the caregiving kind of has a reward attached at the end of it. Not that you do it for a reward, but we baby our kids, we give them medicine, we make sure we drink fluids and we take care of them and then they get better. And you can feel success as a parent for doing that. I guess it's hard to feel like you're doing good as a caregiver when your spouse has cancer because it's like they don't get any better. So you're doing everything you can, but there's still progression. Uh, Obviously, it's hard. I can't imagine being on the opposite side, right? The thought of losing you, even like hypothetically, makes me sad. It seems like it's an unfathomable thing to think about. There's no way our world could exist without you. So on the opposite end, I'm already envisioning a world for you and our kids without me. So that would be really hard to think about. These feelings you have are a lot of feelings and it's a lot of conflicting things, right? Not only is it challenging because caregiving is physically exhausting it's emotionally exhausting. And then plus you have the rest of life on top of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Your life doesn't stop. Still work stress. Still. Yeah. You'd ask, what do you take for self-care? You really got it. For anyone out there who's doing this, you really got to be in therapy. Just have to be. That helps. I go every week <laughs> and I keep thinking, oh, um, so I'll cut back like twice a month, but <laughs> it's helping every week. So Obviously, this is a joke, but I don't know what point I'll be fixed mentally where I can just go twice a month or once a month. But right now I go every week and that's helpful. I, I would like to plug it a little bit more because I'll just speak for myself, but I think this applies to at least Americans listening in American society. It's really difficult to talk about some of these things with the spouse that you're caregiving for. I think some people might be inclined to say you maybe don't need a professional, maybe you don't need therapy, just talk to your spouse. Like you have a partner that you can talk to about these things. That's part of what's great about being married. But it's really difficult to talk to your spouse about some of the issues with caregiving, especially if some of those issues are tied to your spouse. Not that I've ever had a complaint about you ever under any circumstance and for any reason, because I never would because you're perfect. But right. if I did, <laughs> hypothetically speaking, have something that's frustrating for someone who avoids conflict like me it's already a difficult conversation it's extra difficult when your spouse has cancer and it doesn't matter whether it's related to the cancer or not sometimes i can't help but feel like i should never say anything that could make you feel in any way something less than anything else because i don't want to add any extra stress on top of your cancer so if i have something that's frustrating me Um, Having a neutral person I can talk to and help me process those things is unbelievable. And so, again, I can't stress enough that therapy is wonderful. And if you can find somebody that's great and that you can trust, you should be doing that, cancer or not. But especially if you're a spouse or you you caregive for a loved one, therapy is really helpful. Even if you don't think you need it, um, therapists are great about helping you understand where your problems are and why you need to fix them. So that's one thing. Another thing that's difficult, but I think worthwhile, 
is for self-care is to have an enjoyable hobby that fits your mental health issues or needs. Because some people find an enjoyable hobby something that takes all their focus and concentration. Building model trains or whatever. It's like I have to focus and plan and design and concentrate. Someone like me, I prefer my hobbies to be mindless and something that uh, helps me escape from reality, not make me more grounded in reality. So I like to play video games. I probably do that too much, like I guess most in my age. But I like to play video games and watch TV, things that can just be a nice escape from my normal day-to-day life. I can escape into a TV or a show or a movie or a video game or a book. Um, I also like to read a lot too, but just escaping into some sort of fantasy is for me something that's very helpful. It gives me a time out of my day where the choices I make in a video game or the choices characters make in a show or movie isn't impacted by cancer or caregiving. And so having those sorts of escapes has also been really nice because it gives me little spots throughout the day and week of, you know, a mental break from thinking about things so much and so intensely. That makes a lot of sense. And just to clarify, you don't play that much. My sweet husband, Danny, plays video games basically when I'm asleep. Even though you're being super considerate of when you play video games, (laughs) you just do it while I'm asleep. So that's really nice. This has been really helpful. I'm, I know it sucks to have to talk to me about it. And I know this is kind of last minute too. So <laughs> I want to thank you for being on here. Yeah, and it doesn't suck to talk to you about it. I feel this podcast maybe is a good example. We should probably talk more because I just feel like we deal with cancer so much talking to you about it on top of dealing with it every day. I mean, that's what's nice about therapy is I can talk about some of these things to a person. Not only do they not know me or know you or their neutral third party, but they're also somebody who hasn't heard this before. Like you and I talking about cancer, we talk about it all the time when we're at the doctor's office on back and forth from appointments. So it's like at the end of the day after the kids are in bed, deciding to have a really deep and heavy conversation about your cancer feelings, what precious time you and I have together that's just time for us. It's like I don't want to spend all that time just talking about cancer. Yeah, this is nice. Thanks thanks for having me on. This is really nice. Yeah, uh, thank you for being so open and vulnerable about everything. It's really sure. hard, but I love you. I love you too. Can you edit this so I sound manly? Yes, Can you do I'll that? edit it so you'll sound so manly. Okay, good, because <laughs> real men don't cry. Just kidding. Love you. According to the CDC... The need for caregivers is growing along with the aging of the U.S. population. The number of caregivers increased from 43.5 million in 2015 to about 53 million in 2020, or more than one in five Americans. There are a number of different ways we can show our love and appreciation to our caregivers. We can help them with errands, chores, and tasks, provide emotional and social support, Negotiate times to check in on them. Make sure they're managing their own health care needs. Help them create and manage a care plan for the person they care for. Encourage them to seek mental health services if necessary.
Our own podcast sponsor, Share Cancer Support, provides educational programs and support groups to caregivers through their website, sharecancersupport.org. On the Caregiver Support tab, you can find the date and times to webinars or online meeting space for a support group. Caregivers do the thankless job, and it's important that we take time to care for them as much as they take time to care for you. If you'd like to discuss this episode or any other, please join our new closed Facebook group, RMBC Life Group. This episode is produced by me, Natalia Green, along with co-host Ashley Fernandez. Original music and sound design by Connor Kinsley. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Live wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at rmbclife.org.